Quarter Rest is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash quarterrestpodcast. Check us out on Instagram. The handle is quarterrestpod. Visit our website, quarterrestpodcast.com, and you can email me at joe at quarterrestpodcast.com. Keep it classy, folks. We don't want any incidents. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of Quarter Rest with your host, Joe Diego. It's me. It's kind of lame to announce yourself like that, but I did it anyway, and I would do it again. And I'll tell you why, because I have a great show for you this week. Introducing our guest, Sam Crooks. He's an old friend of mine. He's a bass player. He sings. He dances. He probably does a number of other things. And he's going to do them all for us this week on our show. Give it up for Sam Crooks. Sam Crooks. Sam Crooks. So happy to see you. How's it going? Yeah, good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, the weather's pretty good here today. How's the weather in dreary old England? Uh, It's actually been a pretty good summer. Certainly a good spring. Uh in terms of what I've seen over the last kind of five years of on and off rain. Uh, we had like, you know, two two months of really good sunshine, and then June and July was a little bit rainy, but now it seems we're back to some good stuff. So, Sam, what, what are you doing over the pond, man? What, are, what brought you out to the UK? I mean, that question would have been a lot more straightforward, I think, uh, you know, more than five months ago. It, it seemed a lot more clear you know, before all this COVID stuff. Uh, But I've been here about five years now, uh, coming up on five years next year anyway. And uh, I came over here to just kind of start fresh with the music thing Um, and, you know, followed my partner over here and uh, just to, you know, see see how it goes, to see what the scene is like and kind of get involved in that. So, And you're in London, that's right? I am, yeah. Northwest London, yeah, in Belsize Park. So, I mean, you know, it, it, I I certainly am kind of getting out there. Uh, I've got this band, Gatekeepers, that we've been playing for about maybe four years now um, with a guy who's, who's from Cambridge but has been living uh, in London for like 10, 12 years now, uh, Nick Anderson, lovely guy. So, I mean, yeah, it, I, like, I don't know. I haven't really done much over the last five months, so it's hard to remember what the old world is like, you know? I know the feeling. I think everybody knows that feeling. So let's talk about COVID. Let's just get that conversation. Get it out of the way, yeah. yeah. Because I think people are getting sick of talking and thinking about it, even though it's still here and it's still going to be with us for a while. Yeah, I, I was mentioning just yesterday how I was, I was sick of talking about it every day, you know? At least one point in the day, you know, I have a conversation with, at least somebody about cases and what's a what's a lockdown going to be like if we have to do it again and you know all this other stuff it's just like it's every day at this point so it's exhausting so yeah well i'm sorry today won't be the day where you don't talk about it so that's how has yeah well don't, don't blame me man blame i don't know i don't know who to blame blame the bats yeah i think that's a like somebody we can all agree we can blame. They've, they've like proved that, that it comes from a bat, at least. You know, there's a lot of other really weird kind of 
inappropriate blame uh being passed by all sides about something or other um well everybody wants to blame somebody else in terms of the human blame there's a lot of like diffusion of blame like nobody wants to take responsibility Mm -hmm. but how has the the pandemic been treating you both as a musician and as a person yeah so um so over here i guess so it's been really kind of interesting following each the timelines of kind of the different countries and how they've been affected and everything i mean everybody's kind of watching the same story develop being told by various media outlets and everything but you know right back so london locked down i think the 25th of march or something and by then uh it was very clear to me anyway that this was going to be a big problem um and so my the so the company that i work at uh which is my day job locked down they, they sent everybody home like a week and a half before um which i thought showed you know a certain level of professionalism and care for their employees and everything well it showed um, a certain degree of foresight as well I well mean, yeah clearly they they saw which way the wind was blowing and they and that's good i mean that's a really good thing for them to do yeah it was great and uh i mean they've they've treated me and you know the guys on my team and the other employees at uh at that place like so so well so it's been really i've been super fortunate to be employed there before covid happened because they took care of us like straight away so i've been on on furlough um, from that job, uh, since the beginning of April. And if furlough is kind of a foreign sounding word, I don't know what the word they're using in Canada, but furlough is, is the word they've assigned to this specific situation, you know? I see the word furlough a lot. Could you maybe talk about what furlough means in like a UK context? So as far, I, as far as I know, they just took it as the word to mean basic un- unemployment pay by the government to the companies that are that are paying your salary so they'll pay 80 percent of uh, people's wages and they'll pay it directly to the company so you don't really have to worry about getting it from the government or or anything like that it just comes your paycheck just kind of comes as normal either reduced by 20 percent or in the case of my company topped up to 100 percent, which has also been like an amazing Oh, that's thing great. that they've done, yeah. I mean, they've just been really uh, caring in the way of trying to alleviate people's kind of anxiety about the whole thing. So it's been really nice. That's a really good thing because it's been a very stressful time for a lot of people. Uh, so I'm not the expert on this because it hasn't touched me, but I do, from my understanding, Canada has implemented something similar. Okay. Um, now in the U.S., it's a different different ball game. I mean, most people who've been laid off are just laid off and on unemployment and you know i'm from the u.s originally but not living there now so everything i know is what i sort of hear from friends what i see in the media and so on but it seems like you know a lot of people have had really big difficulty getting unemployment money um you know spending countless hours on the phone with unemployment offices you know just trying to get like a check right yeah, like there's some $1,200 check or something. Well, so there was the $1,200 stimulus check, which went out to every every uh, adult American. And then there's like the, the, the increased unemployment benefits. But that's not unemployment money that goes to the company to keep people attached to their job. That's just money that goes to the individual. 
See, and this is one of the things that's been criticized is that the U.S. hasn't done what other countries like the U.K. have done in sort of keeping people connected to their employment. People are just kind of being tossed onto the street without a job, being told, well, here's a little bit of unemployment money. You're going to have to wait like a couple months before you see any of it. So it's it's a big problem. And I, I tell you, man, I'm I'm not so much scared for like my immediate family and, and many of my friends. Like I, I seem to... The people in my circle seem to be pretty fortunate, but it's a scary situation for a lot of people. It's yeah. a really, really tough situation. Oh, for I can't imagine. I, I mean, I just feel like, and and don't get me wrong, like the UK, uh, in my opinion, has kind of, you know, not handled kind of shit this, the bat a little bit, not handled this the great the greatest way possible. But I I feel in safer hands than I would if I was there in the US. I think it just. Although that, I mean, all the representation of what's actually happening there is also being sensationalized my way, I can imagine, through the UK media and, you know, Facebook and whatever. Uh, but it but it does look bad. So I'm glad to hear that you've been faring pretty well. Now, how has this affected you as a musician? I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be. Yeah. So uh, I haven't been able to have band practice with my uh, bandmate, Nick, um, since the 13th of march and that's just kind of by virtue of we live far enough apart from each other that we'd have to take the the transport and we're we're both kind of in situations in which we're shielding people Mm. and so yeah it's just like it's starting to get to a point now where i think we'll be able to you know i'll be able to have them over and or we can go meet in the park and and sort and so like a at least some sort of play time um together but yeah i mean just not so it's been a very much a like a personal kind of uh practice session for about the last four months which which has been good in its own way um but yeah missing playing with him for sure and for people of course you know gigs in general you know yeah i saw something on facebook the other day it was like (laughs) you just a stupid meme with uh you know, a tombstone and it said, rest in peace, gigs. Yeah. It's so <laughs> gigs, sad. man, yeah. they're, they're all done. Yeah. And it's, it's just crazy. Cause like, um, the, the last gig that we played was, uh, like a, such a good one in, I think it was like February 21st or something. And, uh, it was at this place called the pheasantry, which is just a really fancy Victorian pizza jazz bar type thing in uh like chelsea um okay. in london so like the big the posh part you know and uh so this bit i mean it's ridiculous it looks like a like a like a greek you know building of some kind like uh, the parthenon you know okay. when you when you walk in so there's big columns and everything it's all done it's up. got that neoclassical architectural style yeah, exactly. And then and then you walk in and it's just like a pizza bar and then you go downstairs and it's like a really beautiful kind of jazz bar in the style oh, of that's cool. the Village Vanguard or, you know, a place like that, kind of small and whatever. And we so we opened up for um Jack Bruce's son, Malcolm Bruce. Wow. Um who's doing kind of like a I think he just kind of threw that gig together to you know, have some fun with some guys that he hadn't played with in, in a while. Like it wasn't, he wasn't doing it, like promoting anything. It was just kind of a gig. He, he might live upstairs for all I know, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was wicked. It was like packed house and 
it's just it's funny to think that that was the last gig that I did and I have no idea what the next one's going to be like you know that's not like online you know yeah so have you been doing online gigs I I did one uh for this um lady who uh we met playing at uh what was it the Marylebone uh street festival which is just kind of this one-off thing that happens uh in Marylebone which is kind of like downtown London and uh she um organized like this Facebook group for a pub that's like near her near her home in Wiltshire and uh there was like, I don't know, like a thousand people on the, on this group. And so they'd just been doing, she's like, okay, well, if we're not going to go to the pub to have these shows, we'll just, everybody at the pub sign up for this, you know, Facebook group and we'll do it like that. So I did one of those. I mean, it, it, it was fun and everything, but I, uh, you know, I hadn't done a solo show in like a really long time. And so it was just a bit weird playing guitar again after, you know, four years straight of playing pretty much only double bass. Um, so yeah, I would definitely get back on it. Yeah. So in gatekeepers, you're playing upright bass. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I guess things still haven't opened up enough in the UK that there can be like outdoor gigs. Cause I know from some of the people, you know, some friends of mine and people I've talked to in Vermont, outside gigs are starting to happen again. And like in Nova Scotia, even some like bar gigs are starting to happen again. They're just, they're not as big Right? These are small gigs for sure. It's not going to be like the one you were describing earlier, but at least there's like some live music taking place. It looks like in London, you're not there yet. Uh, yeah. So the pubs are back open. Um, but I would say, I mean, if the if the pub is being responsible. Are people going? Yeah, people are going. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, like I've been like a couple of times. It's nice okay. like at, at the, the pub that's closest to our, our flat. Um. They've got a big back garden and it's just, it's like nicely spaced apart. So you don't really have to worry about that stuff. But I, I, I do know there's been some pubs like downtown that have just gotten out of control and there's all kinds of, you know, hugging and touching going on and stuff you can't do right now, you know, so. the cool water when the fever runs high you got the look of the line in your eyes and I was in crazy emotion till you calmed me down Right, or oh, it's likely to lose me. 
It's apt to confuse me Cause it's such an unusual sight I swear I can't I can't get used to something so right Something so Let's talk about gatekeepers. Uh, How did you meet Nick? Uh, So I moved here in 2016 and uh, I actually went to work on a cruise ship um, as like a kind of solo guitar singer type act. Um, And on there I met a whole bunch of British people. Whereas like before I, I, you know, I was here, but, and I was going to like open mics and, and uh you know just kind of getting to know the city a little bit uh but 
but uh, on a cruise ship, you're going to be, it's kind of like a, a micro social experiment where you just jam sure. people together and they hang out every night, no matter what. And usually it's until four 30 in the morning with a bunch of drinks. And, um, so yeah, I met these great guys, uh, from kind of around the UK. Um, but, and one of my buddies was, uh, coming into town like a, like a month after the, the contract ended. And I was like, okay, this well, is a what, Canadian buddy. Uh, this is a British guy. So okay. someone you'd met through the cruise yeah. experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So he was, a, he was a part of the, uh, of the rock band that kind of plays like from, you know, nine until one in the morning type thing. Party on the, band on the cruise line. On the cruise line, yeah. Um, and yeah, so he'd come in town, and and we had kind of hit it off. There was a there was a base on board that was just kind of like in a hole behind the stage, and I was like, "Yo, does that thing work?" And it, you know, I had to actually hit the the bridge and move it over like a full kind of like inch <laughs> before it actually made a sound that that was that was cool but we spent like a lot of nights you know just jamming kind of behind the stage um nice. so so we thought we'd, we'd go to a uh an open mic at the dublin castle which is about a 20 minute walk from my place and is famous for um being like amy winehouse's bar of choice and so she was kind of there's just loads and loads of pictures of her just kind of all over the place there. So I think she was there quite often. And they did a, uh, a wicked open mic with um, these guys that would just essentially be like a jam band if you wanted them to be. And you could kind of go up and do whatever. Um, but Nick, Kind of like a house band? Yeah, like like a house band, but like, like, re- like a lot weirder than just like your regular house band that okay. would just kind of play kind of whatever song... You get like, they'll play your song for you kind of thing. Oh, wow. So you'd have to give them like a little rundown of it. But they're, you know, these young lads and they're really quite good. Um, And Nick, my guitar player, uh, worked at the bar there. And uh, he just got up to like kind of open the night before these dudes showed up. And I was like, uh, it's like you know keeping to myself in the back not really i'm kind of a shy guy so you know not just kind of jazzing people up everywhere and uh then i saw him play and i was like yo you got to play with me like tonight and then um yeah he just kind of like riffed on a couple of my tunes and then i i wrote him after and was just like oh yeah we got to play and then been playing ever since and i guess he liked your bass playing yeah, well, I was all on guitar. I didn't even have my bass with me yet. I oh, had to, okay. I had to like go back to get my bass, on account of it being gigantic. Yeah, ba- yeah. upright bass is a pretty big instrument. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm fortunate enough now. I just last year I got, um, well, I saw that I I just finished listening to uh, Chris Blades's, um, podcast that you did with them. The one, the most yeah, recent that was one the last that you dropped. One I released. Yeah, I really loved that. Uh, yeah, re- I mean, obviously love that guy, love his band. Uh, so yep. it was, yeah, it was really interesting to kind of hear what he's been up to for the last little while. Um, and sure. the reason I mentioned those guys is because, uh, we, me and the bass player have the same, uh, Chadwick folding bass and it was actually his bass player that I was like, yo, what do you think about these? I don't even really, I don't know the guy at all but i reached out to him i was like hey man friend of chris's what do you think about this thing he was like it's the dopest thing 
And so now I got a base that folds in half, which is amazing. And it's not an electric base. It's no. not like a, it's an acoustic upright base that folds in half. Yeah. So there's a little compartment in the back uh, that you can kind of slide off. And then you loosen the strings, take the bridge out, and then just kind of fold the neck back. And it's got this mechanism that will just kind of allow it to, you know, glide in there. It's super cool. And so, then you just have to, like, retighten the strings, re retune yeah, them. Yeah. So that takes about 15 minutes. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. All good. It's insane. Is it easier to carry, I guess, just because it's not as tall? Um, so depending on what you're doing... Yes. So I, I actually, if I have to take it on the tube or the underground, uh, depending on you where I'm subway. going. Subway. Subway. On the subway. Or metro. On the I, Well, I called it the tube. They would say it's the tube, mate. But, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, like I prefer to take just in the bag with my little rolly wheels that I normally had uh, because just being on the train with it, I'm, I can maneuver it better. But, uh, like, if you're going in a car or if you're going in a plane, the uh, Chadwick folding base is the way to go for sure. I feel like yeah, I'm selling imagine. it, but, you know, I, it's it's actually awesome. So This episode of Quarter Rest <laughs> is sponsored by Chadwick Folding Base. Yeah, right. Take this base to your place. Take this base to a space. Yeah. Um. That's actually really cool, and I'm surprised I've never heard of that. That sounds awesome. And yeah, the sound good. is good. You're not sacrificing tone? Like, not at all. It's the best plywood. Like, I, you can get a better bass, obviously, if you spend loads and loads of money. But in terms of plywood bases and the fact that when you, you plug it in, I think the all the stuff that's inside to, to brace it, to kind of allow it to be able to maneuver the way it, that it does actually helps it out when it's plugged in. It sounds better than most plywood bases with just a pickup on it because there's no like extra kind of um, frequencies or reverberations going on. It's all solid in there. But even as an acoustic instrument, it's like maybe a little bit quieter than a normal bass, but I don't notice it at all. All right, let's go back in time a little bit. How did you first get into music in a big way? Oh, good question. Um, I reckon my brother probably has a lot to do with it. Um, he, you know, he's five years older than me. And so pretty much anything he was doing when I was a kid was like the coolest thing ever. Um, and so he... I have two kids. I know how it is. Yeah. They're constantly trying to, you know, copy each other and do whatever Absolutely. the other guy's doing. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I mean, he introduced me to like Metallica and Tool and Soundgarden and all these bands that just kind of like lit my brain on fire with how awesome they were. Um, and so I would say he's huge. My dad, as you know, you've been a part of the, you, we both went to the same university and we're saying in yep. the same choir and everything. Um, so he's, you know, certainly a guy who's uh, influenced me a lot. I used to wake up to, um, the Beatles, you know, pretty much every day. And I used to think that those were his tunes and that the Beatles had, had stolen them from him. I was out, outraged when I learned that at like four years old, you know? Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, definitely family, I guess, is the, is the easiest answer to that. And then I, I picked up bass. That's usually the case. Yeah. And, um, 
yeah, I picked up bass when I was 12 because I didn't want to play guitar like my brother was playing. And so I was like, I'll go with the the heavier four string thing. Seems like there's less to deal with there. It must be easier. And, uh, that's what and, everyone always thinks. Uh, yeah. What, do you think that's true? Do you think bass is easier? Uh, I think on like a very superficial level that it is. But if you actually think about what the bass is doing and and listen to what the great players do, then uh, you've got to be a master at it. It's a whole different way of thinking, I think, than guitar or piano or drums. You know, for the sake of listeners who aren't like who aren't bass players or who have never played in a band or even who have never played in a really good band with a really good bass player. Like what, what is the role of, of a bass in a band, like a typical rock band, jazz band, pop band? I mean, I've always thought maybe this is cause I'm biased, but I think I've always thought of it as being the instrument that like brings it to life, you know, brings mm. all, brings everything. Yeah. You would think that. Wouldn't I, you know? I mean, I would for sure. And I know there's just, I can feel the guitar players just yelling at, whatever their headphones or they're listening on this eventually um but yeah like it, for me it, it brings the color it, it it holds down everything it's the link between you know all the instruments it's the direct you know it's a per- percussive instrument if you're playing double bass just as much as a melodic instrument if you're victor wooten you know um so and i just love the control that that bass good bass players have as well you know they can they can just change everything by playing a different you know a note down a step or something and completely change the whole color of the game you know so really everybody's at our mercy i think because we're down in the cellar yeah i think the bass i mean a lot of people seem to agree that the bass actually is what defines the rhythm in the band more so even than the drums Mm because the drums can kind of play ahead can kind of play behind the drums can kind of like dance around the rhythm a little bit Mm. the bass is really like driving the the pulse of the music yeah arguably more so than the drums it it might depend on the style a little bit it might depend on the band of course might depend on the player uh but to me a good bass player is defining the rhythm defining Mm. the pulse and a bad bass player is just like going up and down the neck too fast, and right or right. or you playing stu- player. playing stupid yeah. shit. Yeah, <laughs> me playing bass. I'm playing some. I'm playing a guitar line that happens to be on a bass. Yeah, and this is why I don't play bass. Fair. I uh, I read Charles Mingus's uh, autobiography. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read that, but it's like I haven't. It's pretty. It like it's. I mean, it's so him. Like, if you know anything about this guy, it's like, it's totally fucking him. Sorry for swearing. Uh, you I can don't know. swear on the show. Oh, brilliant. Um, but yeah, he, I mean, he's totally obsessed with himself. And it's like 600 pages or something. And like, only the, like, the last 50 are like really cool insights into like his musical mind, if I can put it that way. Cause I, I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of his music. Oh yeah. But, uh, yeah, like the first, like, it's like an autobiography. And so he kind of refers to himself in the third person when he's like, he tries to like bring 
characters into it and so like you know little baby charlie was doing this and little baby charlie was doing that or whatever but there's a lot of complaining uh and there's a lot of anger (laughs) as you can probably imagine oh yeah Um, but anyway yeah there's a a wicked bit in those last like 50 pages that i are totally worth it i mean like i would read it uh again just to get that experience and um he talks about how he thinks of uh, the beats as like a circle. And so he'd be like, I can play, you know, around it to the side of it, behind it, or like, you know, one different thing on each beat and it'll still be in perfect time. So I always thought, mm. I, I kind of took that. I was like, try to, you know, try to understand it like he understood what he was saying there, you know, because it's quite a, yeah. I think it's quite a deep kind of thing to think about. You know, but he's like so rubbery and bouncy and stuff. You can, I, I feel I know he knows what he's talking about when he says that, you know. Yeah, he has, he has a certain degree of credibility. Yeah. Do you like Mingus a lot as a bass player? Oh man, unreal. I mean, there's, there's some, uh, there's some recordings that I find like he's like, he's almost too like angry or, or something for it to get for it to be getting through like he's playing so hard it's wicked and he's playing at like 300 bpm or whatever as fast as possible and uh but it's also like super kind of atonal especially that stuff in the later 60s and 70s that i don't always love it i love him more as like a orchestra type dude or like a sextet kind of thing um He's like, he's in terms of that, I think he's my favorite. There's a concert of him in France in like 1961 that just rips like front to back for like three hours. It's unreal. Because Mingus is arguably more, this is Charles Mingus, jazz bass player Mm. for for those foolish people listening who don't know who we're talking about. (laughs) Um, He's arguably more famous as a composer. Like he wrote so Mm. many tunes that have become jazz standards uh and some of them are great really cool songs um that i i I sometimes forget like what instrument he actually played right which is bad i shouldn't Uh, and he and he was definitely a good bass player as well no doubt about it yeah he just played like he played in a way that i don't think anybody plays like anymore like he's so of the old style with the gut strings and the Mm like the action you know four inches off his base but he's just got big bear paws so it doesn't matter you know yeah like him ray brown uh paul chambers all these guys just had big mitts you know yeah and they well, played kind of had to yeah because they didn't play with microphones so they so they just like had to jam it through and they're like okay what's the loudest string you know <laughs> how, how loud can i make this thing go if i hit it with all my might are you a big jazz guy uh yes so i i got into jazz in university through well through hanging with my buddies who are also kind of um uh, kind of getting into it by virtue of our teachers at at bishops uh i have i wasn't really into it before i mean i i i liked more i would say jazz fusion so i was enjoying like mahavishnu orchestra and bella fleck and the fleck tones and you know the weirder kind of stuff like that. The aforementioned Victor Wooten. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't be a bass player and not like Victor Wooten. It's just it's the law. Uh, I I find it would be criminal if there was a bass player out there that you know 
really loved bass and didn't like Victor Wooten. Because, like, he, he, I mean, what he does in the Flectones is, like, the epitome of being a great bass player and also being Victor Wooten. Yeah, I've seen him live twice, and both times it was with his his Wooten band. With, like, the Stanley Clark and those guys are just like, or the, the actual Wooten family. The Wooten family. Oh, cool, yeah, yeah. So both times it was with them, and holy, holy shit, that guy's a virtuoso. And so is the band. I mean, it was technically some of the most amazing music I've ever seen performed live, and all improvised and very tasteful, too. Yeah. Well, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> Even the tasteless stuff is still kind of tasteful, though, because those guys actually know their harmony and know how to like play right. melodically. Yeah. Like, so it's not it's never just mindless shredding, even when it's shredding. <laughs>
changes round across my mind Learn to let go in time A sea of changes battle with regret Learning to let go but not forget Learning to let go but not forget Learning to let go but not forget Not forget Not forget So can you change my mind For all the strange and unkind Dangers of my time Got me seeing who Have you heard the album Money Jungle? Yes. Oh, man. Love it. Love it. So Money Jungle, this is Duke Ellington on piano. And if you don't know who Duke Ellington is, I I want you to turn this podcast off right now (laughs) and drown yourself in Duke Ellington's music. I'm going to open a beer for Duke Ellington. Probably the greatest jazz composer and one of the great jazz musicians, really. Old, old guy, right? His career started in the 20s. He came out of uh, came out of Kansas City, I'm pretty sure. I think so, or yeah. Saint, or St. Louis. Anyway, definitely from Missouri. Um, and then was like a mentor to a million different jazz musicians. But that album, Money Jungle, it's with him. It's with Duke on piano, Mingus on bass, and then Mac Ro- Max Roach who was like just one of the great jazz drummers Unreal. of the time. Yeah. And it's just these guys playing as a trio. This was recorded in 1962. And I swear to God, it's like the first metal album. It's, uh, it's, it's, un- it's so crazy heavy. how heavy it is. Yeah. I mean, Caravan it's, is the one I, I love oh. on that, on that one. And it's just Duke, like really having fun with those guys. Yeah. Because he was from a very, he was from a totally different generation than them. And, you know, he plays piano in, in more of like a, a 20s style, right? Like he's, he's a little bit more, you know, because with like later jazz in the 50s and 60s, the, you know, the piano is just kind of like playing like two or three note chords and then playing melody over top. Whereas Duke is like playing with his whole hands, right? The more old school jazz piano style. And then Mingus is just doing whatever on that <laughs> album and max roach is somehow holding it all together and the whole thing sounds like it's about to go off the rails pretty much the whole time yeah so the whole album is it's it's fantastic so i i have actually a funny story about that record and so it's, it's one of my my favorite kind of jazz stories that i've learned i you know what i might have actually learned it in the mingus biography that i was talking about before um but basically 
the the story goes now it doesn't sound like quite of an ellington thing to do to me to the guy who i kind of imagine his personality being like you know um but apparently he invited those two dudes to record something like and as they did back in those days they just put like a session down for one day and knew they were going to record something wicked which oh like, yeah is just blows my mind and um he invited those guys in under the pretense that they would be contributing songs as well. Um, and then on the day, uh, told them that actually, no, they're going to do like seven of Ellington's tunes or tunes that he likes to do or something. And sure. apparent, apparently, uh, Mingus was just like totally really, really angry about that. Um, and tried to, leave for the day but then he talked him back into it but I, I my theory is is that he did that to piss him off so he would play well or play <laughs> play in the style i should say that that ellington wanted him to which is like really angry which is why that's <laughs> album sounds so metal you know and then max it, was under the same kind of impression i guess it really does mm. it's it's super especially the bass is super angry mm. sounding there's one where he just He's doing like this extended technique of just pulling the string around the fretboard and playing, and it's like, it goes on like that for a long time to a point. Like I've listened to that track before and just like ended up in a belly laugh just because he's just on it. He's just doing it. He's like, "This is my idea for this song, and you're gonna get it." If it weren't for copyright and licensing bullshit, I would play it right now. I I would drop it right in. All right, let's get back to you for a little bit. So you started playing bass when you were 12. When did you start singing? Um, the first time I actually, you know, I was probably singing before that. I definitely sang in some, like, you know, young kid choirs when I was growing up and was always kind of singing to myself and, you know, with my parents and stuff. But I never really thought about it seriously as something that I'd like to do until I was at, uh, and this is weird. It was like, uh, it's called May, May weekend or something at this like Christian camp in, in Quebec. And, uh, basically it was just like getting ready for their camp to be set like a summer camp type deal, getting ready, you know, getting people in for a weekend to come stay in the cabins and help clean up and do all this other stuff. But they wanted me and my, you know, 15-year-old friends to do the music. Uh, and so we just, like, we learned, like, a bunch of their kind of, like, Christian rock tunes and just played, like, the same 10 songs every night for, like, these three days or whatever. But at the end... <laughs> At the end, they had a talent show, and I was getting into like uh, Tenacious D at that time, <laughs> and so, <laughs> oh no, so yeah, and so we did, uh, we did tribute, and like people, people loved it. I don't know if it went over well with like you know the song <laughs> being about the devil and and smiting him and such. Um, although I guess you know that's that's a good Christian it's still value. I don't know. Probably I don't know. the least offensive song from that tenacious d album oh yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah <laughs> it's true there's only like a couple swear words in it and it's about yeah like killing the devil and not about your dick or 
like weird sex stuff you know yeah yeah um, anyway, yeah, so we did that, and I had a really fun time, and people liked it, and I was like, oh, man, I'd do that again. And so I've just kind of been singing ever since in choirs, and then, yeah, and then went to Sejep uh, at Champlain and got vocal lessons there, and that's really kind of when I was like, oh, there's actually, you know, a technique to this. It's not just like rock and roll. You Your voice is what it is. You can practice that and, and try to mm. get better. And then choir's been super helpful and playing in bands and stuff. So, yeah. Did you ever feel like you, you had a really bad singing voice? Like, did, was that something you had to discover? Like, that you could sound good singing? Because I think a lot of people go through that, especially a lot of boys. This is on my mind because I recently did an interview where we talked about this. Okay. Uh, the whole concept of people, like, discovering that they can sing. Because uh, a lot of people, it's hard. It's hard to... Uh, to be vulnerable and yeah. to, to uh, expose your singing voice. I think that's a really hard question to answer because there's probably, you know, there was, it, it just seemed like with that moment that I was talking about at the, at the Christian camp thing, it was just kind of like, oh, wow, I like this and other people like it too, where I, just, I it was just like, or other people appeared to like it anyway. And um, it was just like, I was unaware of that before so i don't think i was thinking about it really and then yeah i like to think i i know i know my limitations in my voice i think that's important um like your range yeah range and like the the things that i'm comfortable doing like i i don't sign up to sing like you know high a's and a bunch it like all the time you know there's some people that can live up there you know, yeah. and I used to play oh, yeah. in a couple bands with guys who can just live up in the, the high area, but I'm good for like, you know, a couple belters and then I want to be in the comfort zone or else I'm going to lose my voice, you know? Yeah. For me, like an F is a high note. Mm. So yeah. But again, you have to be aware of what those, of what your range is and what parts of your range sound good. Most tenors or most people who sing tenor in choirs aren't real tenors. Right. Um, first of all, some choirs will get women or altos to sing tenor. Yes. And they're probably the best tenors. Yeah, they're great. In a lot of choirs. They got power. They got, you know. Yeah, somebody who can, you know, a a lower alto uh, woman is often going to sing those tenor lines really well. Mm. And then most people who sing tenor are people like me. They're really baritones, Mm. um, maybe sort of higher baritones. I'm not like a, a I can't sing really low either. Mm. My range is quite small. So to sing tenor parts, I have to use my head voice a lot. Right. And that's fine. I, I can do it. I can slip into the falsetto, but um, but uh, it's not as powerful as as those people who can really hit it. You know, yeah. really belt and hit those notes. I, I envy those people. But, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. It is what it is. All right. So let's listen to a song. We're going to listen to a tune uh, from Gatekeepers, which is your band. This tune is called Shelter, and let's give her a go. Common sense is thrown by the wayside 
And it seems as though there's always a place to go Where the worst of our ideas may hide In a mind's time flown by You're only known by what you've done yesterday Another story spun And what's done is done And you abide by the fortune teller say There's no shelter from the eye That's where the trouble lies In the swelter in time You give out reason and only get back right Trials are unique, tribulations be for themselves You find it hard to sleep as the night makes you weep But the prospect of tomorrow makes your heart leap There's no shelter from the eye That's where the trouble lies In this I dig that harmonic at the end the uh, that uh, your guitar player did there. Yeah, he's full of that stuff. Yeah, it's always a nice way to end a tune, a little guitar harmonic. It's got that nice bell sound. I really like the guitar and the bass. I like the interplay between them, and I like the uh, like the melody and harmony. It sort of sounds like I'm saying I like everything. It's a good tune. So who wrote, who wrote that one? Uh, so, I mean... It- at the like at the finished product, it's always like a combination of us. Um, but that one, 
really, I think, was mostly mine, which I had arrived in London. And then, con- like, with kind of with the idea of it. And then uh, after meeting Nick, really kind of worked on it and and probably and put the bridge in. I think the bridge didn't exist before. I just had like the chorus and the verses and stuff. Um, yeah, the bridge gives it a nice lift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is what a bridge is supposed to do. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So Nick, I mean, he's just so great at uh, so the way that it normally works. I mean, the way that it's worked with, like, I would say 75% of the songs um, that I brought forward is I come up with some kind of rudimentary thing on guitar so I can just figure out what the melody and the lyrics are going to be, like what the song's going to be about. And sometimes it'll be like I only have one verse or, you know, half a chorus or something, but I'll like kind of the, the vibe of the tune. And if I bring that to Nick, then Nick is as you can hear, very talented at playing guitar. And he's got oh, yeah. quite um, quite interesting kind of ideas about accompaniment because mm-hmm. he spent such a long time kind of like accompanying different singers around London for a while after university, as far as I, I can tell. I know he's told me some stories about that, but he get he's so creative in the way that he can play bass and and chord stuff and and do all this wacky crap all at the same time you know he's just he's unreal to watch him play you know sometimes he's i an have experienced to, yeah he's yeah, an he's experienced great. sideman indeed he is yeah and he i mean before this band he he told me that he had never done really much singing at all and he's oh, wow. got a great he's got a great voice you know he's so that's a, that's him singing backing vocals backup vocals chorus, right yeah. yeah he sounds great mm. sounds fantastic and he's a guy who who can spend time up there, as I was saying before. You know, he can just—he's just up there all the time. It's all good. Is there a singer you think that that your voice kind of like a famous singer that your voice kind of uh, reflects or is somewhat similar to in terms of range or? Uh, I mean, people have said Buble before to me, which is like I like I I it's it's not a bad thing. Certainly not a bad thing. Like he. He's got an amazing voice. The stuff no he doubt. does is is not you know necessarily for me all the time, um, but yeah, I I would say like in kind of the smoothy smoothness factor, I th- I guess him. I don't know. I have, I have a hard time kind of attributing myself to stuff like that. Yeah, I can also hear maybe James Taylor a little bit just in terms of the kind of range. Yep, that kind of. Uh baritone-ish, tenor-ish, mid-range kind of singing. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's a huge guy of mine, for sure. Big influence. Yeah. Did you write the lyrics for that tune? Yes. So what's going on in the song lyrically? Um, so I I started really to write the lyrics and it was it was written in 2016. So it, as you might remember, that was a really weird year for for people dying that are famous, you know. That's true. Prince Bowie, Leonard Cohen, uh I know there's some other ones, but those so, Lemmy from Motorhead, uh, although that may have been late 2015. Yeah, it was awful. Oh, yeah, that was bad. Um, it was a terrible year. Yeah, certainly for that kind of stuff it was awful. And so that kind of got me thinking about um well, that gave me the first line in the days when the best of us are leaving. 
and mm -hmm. then from from there i kind of wanted to start each line with like a different kind of scent like a growing sense of time so the next one starts week by week and or mm. or the middle one is uh you know in a month's time or or whatever so each has a little reference to like you know a unit of time so i i, te I tend to do stuff like that i like to force kind of ideas like that and sometimes they really don't work out but when they don't work out i don't finish the song usually <laughs> <laughs> move on to a new one yeah, move or, or you know i'm always trying to work on it like six tunes at a time or else i just go nuts you know so i can just kind of pivot in between i was like okay well this one's pissing me off now so i'm gonna start working on this one hmm. um do you do a lot of like multiple drafts when you're writing songs um like do you always have songs in different levels of or different degrees of completion uh you know, yeah like, this one's half done this one's almost done this one is just an idea uh yeah i would i would never say i would i would know it down to like is this song half done or yeah uh, but i definitely know when it's time to like get on the train and finish the song if that makes sense yeah for sure so like you'll get this last part and you'll be like okay that's good now i'm really jazzed up about how this song is going and so i'm just going to keep hacking at it until it's done but sometimes I'll be like, okay, I love this little thing, but I can't figure out what to put next after it. Mm. Um, whether it be like a, excuse me, a, a chord progression or uh, like a lyrical idea or anything. Sometimes I'll just be stuck at that for uh, weeks and months at a time. Um, but that's where, you know, working on the other song. So you're kind of like always, you know, leveling up each sure. song as you go on. Do you have kind of a preferred approach when it comes to writing lyrics? Like I, I haven't really been doing songwriting for, for years, but when I used to write songs and I would write lyrics, the lyrics would always be the last thing. And it was always the most okay. dreaded part of writing a song. Okay. Interesting. Um, but this is something I like talking about with people. I like, cause everybody's kind of got a different approach. There are so many ways to write lyrics. There are so mm -hmm. many like way, like things that, that lyrics can communicate in a song. Um, do you have kind of like a favorite approach? Uh, so, I mean, usually I, so I love rhyming schemes. I love, as, as I said before, I love to kind of impose things okay. on verses, but I also like, um, and Jackson Brown, I think is a guy, do you listen to much Jackson Brown? I, no? I know like some of his most popular songs. That's kind of a hole in my musical knowledge oh, though man I, take a trip down there sometime i will it's it's i mean he's just he's like the newest guy i discovered of all those mm. older dudes if that makes any sense like i just hadn't yeah like, paul simon james taylor wings and mccartney uh mm -hmm. clapton you know all these all these guys have been down their roads and and listened to their albums but he was a guy that Warren just didn't Zivon? come zivon Oh man, amazing! Because I know they played together. Like, yeah, I think yeah, Jackson yeah. Brown appears on uh, the album "Excitable Boy," which is mm. a favorite of mine. Love that, love that album. Incredible! It, it, what, is he singing or is he playing? Or I think he sings. He might play as well. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac plays some guitar on that album too. Unreal! That guy, okay. could, that guy it, could play. What's that called? Sorry? Excitable Boy. 
Oh, okay. I'll it's uh, it's it's the one with Werewolves of London on it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. But I mean, yeah. So Jackson Brown, the way that he writes lyrics and the way that he'll, you know, use a turn of phrase to like spur the rest of the verse. I don't know if that's mm. that's coming out like in a in coherent way, but I can tell that that was like the thing that inspired him to write the rest of the verse around it. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah, like he's um, got a seed idea and he kind of grows, everything else kind of grows out from that. Sure. And he's just like, he's amazing at at just like finding, you know, the, the most like beautiful little, just tiny little ways to rhyme words and stuff. And I really, like, I dig that about him so much. Uh, and I try to use that, you know, as much as possible. All right, we're going to listen to another Gatekeeper's tune. This one is called I Must Insist. Cool. You'll- you may notice, the listener might not, that I have chosen the first and last song from your record. Mm. Both kind of ballads. Let's give it a listen.
So I have to confess, I chose that song purely for that ending. I love <laughs> the guitar there at the end. That's so tasty. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, he, you know, you can't stop stop him from playing stuff like that. And not that, not that I would, but it's just like sometimes we're having band practice and he's just off doing that crazy stuff so he he his uh i would say his major influence besides like stevie wonder on like kind of his chord he loves to play like a piano player that's that's yeah that he's always saying um but uh tommy emmanuel is like his guy like uh so do you know him very much he's like so he's uh like a virtuoso kind of solo guitar player he doesn't do any singing he comes out he does like, uh, you know, a, a standard like Blue Moon, and he'll mm. do it and be like, "Oh, I'd like to introduce the band," and be, and then just start playing the bass and just start playing the bass, and then gradually add voices in. And yeah. so he's kind of playing like three things at the same time. And so, he, oh yeah, check him out. He's like unreal. Um, and Nick, you know, obviously draws uh, a lot of inspiration from him, and so he's just pretty much always doing something of that sort. It's like, I love that ending. Yeah. It's great. That, that tune's very jazzy, I noticed, uh, in the chord progression. So did you write that one? I did write that one. I, and I actually, um, well, actually, okay. So again, this was one where uh, it was finished by the two of us. But I would say okay. the verses and the chorus uh, I had written kind of sort, sort of on guitar back when I was like living in Calgary before I moved to London. And um yeah, yeah, so that yeah, that's kind of an older older tune that he then made sweet with all this guitar stuff that he does. And those jazzier changes, was that something that got it that got added in? Uh so like I would say like the my uh, so my friends like to make fun of my guitar playing and and call the kind of chords that I play uh, uh, crooks voicings, and so what a what a crooks voicing basically is is uh, you take the top four strings and you you know figure out some sort of sweet chord, and then the top two strings of the guitar are just free, and so it's like got a little bit of an open string, and then you just move that shape around. And it gets you weird stuff. Classic bass player playing guitar type stuff. And I'm really trying to get myself out of that, you know, habit. Um, but I'm yeah. Always so having the open B and E string. Pretty much. <laughs> Just ringing away. I don't know what these strings do, you know. What are they for? I only had four. I don't know why I, I did that accent, but. I liked it. Keep it up. Well, I, I, I dig it and. That ending is super cool, but the song is very nice. So, um, is the song about anything in particular? Uh, so it's kind of like, um, it's kind of about like procrastination, I guess, is the the most central theme. Um, so the first line is tonight, tonight, I swear I'll write the song to, uh, save my sorrow kind of thing. Um, and it's just, yeah. And then, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's just about kind of when, when's the right time to, to do something and am I holding myself back or, uh, you know, should I just kind of get on this thing? 
Mm. And is is anything going to happen if I do do anything anyway? You know, just kind of a. Is procrastination a problem that you have? Uh, I think it's probably a problem that most people have. I would agree. Um, what with uh, the plentiful entertainment we've got, you know. Um, but yeah, but like, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. It's certainly been a problem for me before. I think I've got a pretty good, I, I know how to make myself work now. Um, and it took, it took a little while of getting used to, you know, having a day job and also then coming home and doing music stuff. Like then, then your, then your day is almost like a 16 hour day every, every day of the week, you know? So it did take me, like, I, I kind of eased into London that way in a musician I gave myself a break and I was just like just do what do whatever you want and then that kind of song came out of it and then that's kind of spurred me to do to try to get things going again hmm. but I had to move here and like figure out a job and figure out a place to stay and you know not just get kicked out for having no money <laughs> so you know <laughs> there's a certain amount of life you know administration that I need to do whilst yeah, for uh, sure. continuing it's not like i moved over here and now i'm a professional musician i'm still actively working on that right yeah and unfortunately it's it's not a easy moment to be working on that uh what certainly not the, what with the gigs what uh, with the gigs existent not being there yeah yeah um let's talk about london just a little bit okay COVID aside, how do you find the London music scene? And how do you think it compares with what you've known in the past in Canada? Yeah, so re like I think my perception of what it's like in Canada will be kind of a, a bit weird because I moved to Montreal with my old prog rock band that I was playing with when I was like 20 mm -hmm. uh, called the Lennox Villains because like super original with names, why not? <laughs> And, um, uh, so like I, I knew nothing when I was, when I was there about anything really, I was just kind of like a 20 year old kid playing shows, but not really like we played a lot of really wicked shows and for sure, but we never really got around to recording and it was always kind of like battling other life stuff happening constantly so we were always playing and everything but nothing much was happening we were just kind of playing in montreal now whereas we used to play in like sherbrooke and lennoxville and stuff um but so then after that i moved back because i was i was i was like well i don't think i know enough about music and i don't think i'm smart enough to teach myself about it like some people are and so why don't i go to university and uh try to do it that way and that was a that was great but I kind of like I think I was stuck well not stuck I think I just lived in kind of a non uh entrepreneurial type of spirit for a while it was all just learning about how to play bass because I picked up the double bass at university actually because of my because of my teacher um and in fairness before you can become a professional musician you do have to be a musician yeah. Right. Like you do it. You do have to, whether it's you learn three chords and play in a punk band or you learn all the chords and you play in a jazz quintet or whatever, mm -hmm. you got to learn, you, know, you need to get some kind of chops, some kind of musicality going. Yeah. 
So I, I think like I, I thought I had more of that when I was 20 than I, than I actually did. I didn't know anything about how music was like actually like how to control like your, your talent, I guess. It was mm. just kind of like, and it's not that uh, I didn't think that the tunes that we were playing were good. I, I certainly thought they were good, but I don't think I knew like I'm not, I was in a completely different situation than I am now. Whereas I feel like I can, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like kind of like control, you have better control over it. Better, better control instead of it just being like, okay, let's jam until we find something that we all like. You know, mm. I can go, I can write it down, and I can go, oh, this is why this is sweet, or you know, think about it in music theory terms. I guess had none of that before. Didn't even know how to read anything off a of staff or anything. So there's different like schools of thought about reading and knowing music theory. Some people uh, find it useful and obviously like people learn it for a reason, like because they think that it's going to bring some benefit. And then some people have kind of, you know, arguably like a hipster mentality or like a, you know, I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to inject too much bias here, but some people Mm -hmm. think, you know, okay, if you learn theory, your, your music is going to be really like, cold and technical and you know mm. it will lack the authenticity of you know the guy who just sits down and jams and just purely plays by ear do you think there's truth to that like what like do you think learning music theory is beneficial for somebody who wants to make music that isn't let's say classical music i mean for for me what it did was it alleviated all the frustration of not knowing stuff and so yeah. now like when i hear something i can go to the piano and go okay what was that that was really cool and why how did that work and then kind of figure it out for myself like that but before it was just like well i'm not you know how how could i possibly figure that out it's just like just this wacky chord that i'll never know (laughs) you know that was like a weird attitude i had when i was younger you know oh that chord the g flat 13 i can never play that that's 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 Too beyond expensive. my, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, you pay by the note, right? <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. So, do you think learning theory for you? Do you think it has kind of enabled your creativity more so than kind of destroying your creativity? Or yeah, for me, for sure. Just know it, like, cause uh, and I figured, like, I found out during university that I actually really like knowing this stuff, even if it's you know a little corral that I have to write for somebody or for the professor or anything, I enjoyed those little puzzles. Mm. And so I, I found that, you know, it, it, it makes music a lot less scary if you know, like, kind of a little bit about how it works. Whereas kind of demystifies find, it? Demystifies it, yeah, for sure. And just be like, you know, it doesn't take away from anybody's amazing playing and, and being able to create kind of like ma- almost, you know, magical universes to live in and everything it doesn't doesn't ruin that for me at all it just lets me go okay if i take a closer look at that i can figure out what that is and that'll make me happy to know that at the very least you know and i'll learn something new when you're writing music do you ever like to impose rules on yourself you mentioned like the Mm. kind of music theory corrals and when you're when you're learning music theory you're usually learning like western classical theory unless you're learning jazz theory which is another set of rules but either way you're, you're there's kind of like you know with corrals it's like you know no parallel fifths and yeah. blah, blah 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 do you ever kind of like to say 
you know, create some rules and impose them on yourself to sort of guide that creativity? Or is it more just like a way of just understanding what's going on behind the scenes Mm. sort of in the back end while you're writing? I would say that it depends on sometimes like if I'm trying to come up with like a baseline or something, I'll impose myself uh, some rules in the sense like I really want to play this baseline. How, what chords do we put over top of it to make it always work with the melody that's going on? But if I'm writing on guitar, it's much more of like a standard kind of singer songwriter approach, I think. So it's kind of, yeah, I've got the two ways that I like to, because sometimes like a song will come from the bass line and sometimes it'll come from uh, from the guitar in like a more normal way. Hmm. Do you think that results in different sounding music? Uh, I, I think it definitely can do because uh, if I come to Nick with a bass line, he's going to do something that uh, I never like I, I don't hear. I would never be able to preempt what he's doing what he's going to do to the bass line whereas if i play in something and i have a little idea on guitar i might know how that might turn out a little bit better if that makes any sense sure but like some sometimes i'll i'll be like what do you think about this bass line and then almost without fail he he'll play like the most wacky cool thing like on the first try you know he's one of these guys that just like he just clicks with it you know he's special mm. like that must have a good ear yeah, no, he's unreal. London's a pretty big city. It's a diverse city. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that that translates in the musical scene? Like, is it pretty diverse? Is it is there are there lots of styles that are represented in terms of the local the local scene? You can get whatever you want to get over here. For, that's for sure. Uh, and and that comes in kind of like all levels of proficiency and. Um, I mean, so it, it's interesting because obviously, you know, our band is a little bit weird. It's like a proggy kind of acoustic, melodious, jazzy, folky kind of whatever, almost trying to be like rock instruments as a duo, like rock music sounding as a duo, but jazzy influence and stuff. Like we like to make the songs big with their, in the sense that the, like the harmonies, like for the, for instance, the end of... Yeah both those tunes that we played before just have huge like belter harmony things at the end. So that's like kind of a, an important thing we love to make. We think the words and the music uh, should be the most important type thing, but we also like to screw around and have like wacky stuff underneath that fulfills our kind of proggy desires. If I can put it that way. Um, So we're a weird band. Those itches. We're a weird band. I'm not afraid to say it. Uh, I love our weirdness. Um, but, you know, it's not the kind of band that you can just go anywhere and get a gig with. Like, those people are skeptical <laughs> of, the, of the duo thing, depending on where you go. Um, and so it took us a little while to get into what I would call like a circle of people who are actively kind of making gigs that jive with our kind of vibe that we've got going and other bands that are doing sort of the same kind of acoustic-y kind of progressive jazziness whatever um so that took like a really long time and we well in terms of uh you know like the last four years or so but Mm -hmm. 
um, we played a lot of bad gigs, like really bad on not very fun, uh, like in between. Bad in what way? Like just like the bill that we were on. Okay, first of all, it's like a pub and you play in the basement and nobody's there and uh, you're in between a punk band and like an old guy blues band. And like people are just putting on shows, just kind of like willy nilly. Uh, for what reason? I I can't really tell. Like nobody makes money off those events. Certainly, you don't get paid as the band. It's it's actually quite hard to get paid uh, as a band starting out in London. So it's not it's not good mm-hmm. that way. But now we're now we're um, we're in with a few different people. One of which is uh, Tony Moore who was the guitar player in Iron Maiden um, for a bit. Wow. And uh, was in um, Cutting Crew, who did that song, I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. So he, okay. was, the, he was the piano player and, and writer of that tune. Um, and so he runs a venue in Balham, which is kind of like South London, called the Bedford, which is a place that Ed Sheeran and a number of other people used to play before they were kind of uh, big. And we sure. met him there and he's invited us on his radio show. He's kind of, he invited us to that Marylebone street festival thing. We've met a few other people who got us into that kind of the pheasantry gig, which was that jazz club in, in Earl's court. So like, unfortunately things were really going, you know, in the right direction. I thought like it, I could control it in the sense that, my job was going well and I had all the time to do gigs at night and the gigs at night were going well. Um, and then COVID hit and it's just like, so there's going to be, you know, a certain amount of, uh, restarting that needs to be done with those, with those people that I was mentioning reaching out to them because they're all hurting as well and trying their best to, to keep going. And, and, and a, a lot of them have done, have pivoted really well and started doing online stuff where all the proceeds go to artists and stuff. So I like, I really commend um, kind of their efforts during this thing to keep musicians going. So do you think the, uh, the London music scene is in a good position to bounce back when the time is ready, when the pandemic is finally kind of alleviated? It will really depend on how well the, the, the venues are, supported because that that's the real thing that i think makes this city special is there's so many just incredible places to play yeah. you just got you just got to get in there but they're all right. like amazing and everybody you know has has played at them for i mean that that the pheasantry place i think clapton used to live upstairs or something oh, wow. from it so like he was playing there you know whatever he wanted all the time Wow, and uh, you know, there's just so many stories uh, of places like that. There's a lot of bad places to play too, but I've kind of, I sure. think I've figured out how to avoid those places. But yeah, so it'll, it'll depend. I I really hope so. Certainly, the the musicians will be there, ready to go. Um, but yeah, and what it, about the what about the listeners? Oh well, I mean, yeah, that's not for me to say. I don't I don't think it'll depend. I mean, it's just kind of really annoying that it depends on how we react to this invisible virus thing, you know, because we can't we can't just keep uh, 
you know, uh, opening up and closing down and opening up, that's hurting the economy over here more than than anything else. And so now now what the threat is, is like local lockdown type things, Mm -hmm. which don't really seem to make any sense. And any time that they've happened, they seem to have happened way too late. So there's a big outbreak again. So it's just like nobody knows anything about how it's we still don't know. I think it'll be next year before gig, like I play a gig anyway, unless it's outside. So I don't know. Yeah, that's unfortunately probably the case. Mm. And I agree with you from what I'm seeing, the UK, unfortunately, I mean, it's probably not the country that's done the worst, but it's certainly not one of the ones that's done the best in terms yeah. of handling this thing. I mean, it, it's just, it's there. there's not the same kind of outright ridiculousness like Brazil and the United States, but like they're still oh, they're like they're more like covert yeah shittiness. And so yeah. like people people were asking on on the BBC to the Prime Minister, they're like, don't you think, you know, maybe there's some lessons to be learned from how we dealt with it at the beginning? And, you know, his answer is always, Oh, we only care about what's happening now. Just like what's happening oh, yeah. now. Uh we're we're trying to take care of what's happening now. It's like yeah, man, it's crazy because he wanted, almost you know, died. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, and and he, you know, I, I don't know. He's he's got a, a a special talent of winning people over and then losing their trust and then winning it back over again. Yeah, he's, he does. he's incredible at that. Uh, and you know, I've even like I never th- I didn't vote for him. Uh, I was allowed to vote in the last little election that went on in uh, December. Um, oh yeah, you voted. I did. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I, you're allowed to vote if you're a resident here, which is, oh, I nice. guess, not a not a rule in Canada. Certainly not a rule in uh, the states. No, um, you have to be a citizen, I think. But you didn't vote for him. For 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 Bojo. For Bojo, no, no, I didn't. No, I voted. I uh, I voted for Corbin. Uh, yeah. Who got smoked? Um, oh my god! But she I did. mean, uh. Like it was, it was unbelievable. I really didn't think he was going to get smoked that bad. I thought he might lose, but man, like when the provisional numbers came in and it was just like a predicting a landslide, I was just like, oh wow, okay. This well, is, that happened. Yeah. Anyway, like yeah, I didn't vote for him. Uh, I think he's kind of a knob. Uh, yeah, I think he's uh, he, he's a bit slimy. Um, oh, for sure. But he's really good at at kind of making you feel bad for him or something i think that like the haircut is really good at <laughs> yeah, that. i think so and like i don't know he's done he's done this thing where he's like he's almost like he's funny like yeah he is it, but he's funny and it's almost endearing i think endearing is like almost the right word i think if there is like i i don't know he he's a special guy like he's clearly built to be a pol- politician yeah um, i don't think he's done a great job and i think he should be held to account for that but yeah, it's, uh, it's not for me alone to decide, you know. He's not as viscerally unlikable as Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil. This, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Anybody looks better than that. Those two dicks over there, but uh, yeah, they really do. Just, he, yeah, he's not as outright, just like totally an asshole like those guys are, of like spreading misinformation and such. Yeah, he does it in a covert kind of. Oh, look at me! I'm stupid. I accidentally did this, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's very good at like kind of playing to the camera, and and I think you're yeah. right. He does make you. He does kind of make you feel sorry for him. 
But he also he also kind of strikes me as he wants to be like Winston Churchill, which is like <laughs> yeah. like he want he's not he's not being successful in my mind, but it's like he wants to be him so bad. So when he gives his oh, talks, yeah. you know, we must do this and we must do that, and you know, it's like it's like man, how can anybody take you seriously with that freaking haircut, like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's unreal. So I I can't help but think it's all part of, you know, some kind of big conspiracy. The haircut is just not, I can't get past it, you know. The haircut is, there's something going on there. It's yeah, there signaling something. something going on there, indeed. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Great buddy. Great catching up with you and uh, awesome listening to your tunes. And uh, really cool hearing about what's going on in london even if not everything is wonderful uh, at least yeah. at least the tunes go on i guess the, the tunes go on yeah for sure thank you so much for having me on your on your show i love it buddy it's super inspirational that you're doing this stuff so well i'm having a lot of fun doing it so. i bet thank you so much and that's our show folks a big thank you to sam crooks for appearing on the show and playing some tunes for us a big thank you to you the listener for tuning in this week's episode was recorded and edited by me, Joe Diaco, with music by Alex McNeil. <laughs>